Welcome back to Real Faith Conversations, where we try to talk about life, culture, and faith in the most genuine way possible. My name is Ryan Morris, and joining me today is Chuck Beebe. How you doing, Chuck? I'm good, Ryan. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's glad to have you here. In this episode, we are going to talk about his journey serving in the Vietnam War as a 19-year-old. It's hard to believe he was you were 19 years old serving in Vietnam. So we'll dive into how he got there, what it was like, and how it shaped him for the rest of his life. Chuck, why don't you introduce yourself to the audience here? Sure. Uh, my name's Chuck Beebe, and I know Ryan from St. Peter Parish here. We're parishioners, and he just recently discovered that I'm a Vietnam veteran. He goes, wow, I'd like to have you on my uh, podcast, Real Faith Conversation, and talk about your experience in Vietnam. So if you allow me, maybe I could get started on that. Yeah, good? yeah, and... and so how many years have you been a parishioner here at uh, St. About, Peter? About 10 years. My wife and I were relocated down here from Sikorsky Aircraft up in Connecticut. So we've been in St. Peter about 10 years. And what do you do around here? I'm retired. <laughs> but I mean like in the parish. Oh, in the parish? Oh, I, I'm active in the Knights of Columbus. Uh, I drive the food pantry trailer, um, do a little bit of good works. I'm on the uh, parish council, um, you know, coordinate the, the parish blood drive, uh, do, do a number of things, helping whatever father needs done at the parish and helping guys like you. Yeah. I mean, you're really active around yeah, here. Yeah, I, I love St. Peter. I love staying active, and uh, it fuels my faith journey. My wife and I are just uh, delighted to be parishioners here. It's a, great, it's a great parish to be in. Yeah, and for those of you who don't know, um, he's on the pastoral council, so his picture is in the hallway right <laughs> here near the narthex. If you've ever been to St. Peter, you can see his picture on the wall. It's awesome to have parishioners like this on, and he's he's right. I didn't had no idea he was a Vietnam vet, and we'll learn today he's a Vietnam hero. Um, I don't know about that, but but yeah, I mean, that's the I read one. I read some of the letters. This is this is pretty cool, but uh, yeah, let's start off. You know, how did you sort of enter into the military back then? Okay, so um, first of all, I was a scholar. I uh, dropped out of high school in the tenth grade, and. Uh, <laughs> that was a part of my life that wasn't going very well and I uh, was 16 years old when I enlisted and I had to wait until I reached my 17th birthday before I could leave for basic training and uh, went in they sent me to a helicopter mechanic school and I uh, was a helicopter mechanic in a squadron out in uh, California and was assigned as uh, what they call a crew chief a crew chief is a helicopter mechanic that's assigned to flight duty and a crew chief takes care of the aircraft. You fuel it at night. You take care of all the maintenance. You load it with cargo in the morning. Uh, you fly with the aircraft. Uh, you're kind of like an in-flight steward. You load cargo and unload cargo, um, people, uh, weapons, uh, resupplies. It, it, in today's environment, they have a helicopter for everything. There's medevac helicopters. There's search and rescue helicopters. There's resupply helicopters. There's all kind of helicopters. Back when I was in, there was one helicopter. It was a utility helicopter. And that utility helicopter had a very diverse mission profile. You did everything. You did medevacs, resupplies, and so forth. So um, there was a variety of things that I did. Wow. And as a crew chief, you went everywhere with Yeah, that we, thing, we right? went with the aircraft. You know, in, in Vietnam, you man a 30 caliber machine gun. And uh, your, your, your basic missions are you insert and extract the troops, small unit troops, uh, on combat missions. We also uh, flew a special forces operations uh, units, operators like uh, Marine Force Recon, and you ex insert and extract them. And we also do medevacs, uh, search and rescues. Med medevacs is, was probably the most dangerous mission that we did because you're going into a combat zone where you're picking up wounded Marines and uh, there's a lot of heavy activity going on. Mm -hmm. So that those are, those are kind of uh, dangerous missions, yeah. Wow. 
And so you were 16 when you first entered. I was, yeah. And then you did that training and all that stuff. Um, what was that like, being so young, being sort of thrown into that? I mean, of course you wanted to do it, right? Or well, you wouldn't have. Yeah, actually, at that time, there was a lot of guys my age. I mean, the average crew chief in, in my unit was, was my age. Wow. And, uh, and a lot of them were, frankly, high school dropouts. You know, I don't know why. Uh, maybe because the Marine Corps was hiring and there wasn't any other jobs available. But, yeah, it wasn't unusual to be a young guy um, right out of high school or, uh, you know, high school dropout and be 18, 19 years old. That was, that was pretty common. Wow. Wow. So from 16, and then you actually went to Vietnam at 19, right? Yes, yes. So you arrived on soil, foreign soil, 19 years old. Right. Wow. What was it like sort of that first time you stepped off the aircraft? So, well, let me let me let me just provide a caveat to this, um, just so that no one misinterprets what I'm going to say. I wasn't uh, I wasn't a history professor or a political scientist or a foreign policy expert. I was a 19 year old high school dropout, Lance Corporal in the Marine Corps. So I wouldn't want anybody to think that I think uh, that I'm some sort of a foreign policy expert on the Vietnam War. The, yeah. the, the things I'm going to share tonight are my experience that I had in Vietnam, my personal experience, may or may not be the same as others or other people may or may not agree with me but I just wanted to get make it clear that this is my experience that I'm talking about today and certainly I'm not a, an expert on the Vietnam War yeah for sure yeah. and and yeah. that's really what we try to do here at real faith conversations is have your story um, you know kind of told on our show from your perspective thank you so there's uh, there's there's kind of four concepts that I'd like to address tonight uh, the first is uh, the supply chain and how it impacted the war the second is the, um, the, the use of uh, the, the defoliant Agent Orange by the United States. And the last two are two opposing uh, uh, approaches to prosecute the war. One is, was called Search and Destroy, and the other one was called um, uh, the uh, pacific War of Pacification. Mm. So maybe if I could start with uh, the supply chain, yeah, I think on. it would kind of set the stage on sort of the basics of the war. Yeah, for sure. Um, and I'll use the Civil War as an example. When General Grant graduated from West Point, he, he wasn't assigned to the infantry to Calvary. He was, a supply, he was a, assigned to the supply chain. He knew and understood his supply chain. There's an old saying, an army marches on its stomach. Supply chains win and lose wars. Mm -hmm. And in his particular case, I'll use a small example. When Robert E. Lee and, uh, retreated from the Gettysburg battlefield uh, with the Army of Northern Virginia, um, he the, the supply chain is huge. I mean, it's like hundreds of wagons. It's like 50 miles long. You've got men to feed. You've got horses to water. You've got artillery and ammunition to to, to haul. And it's it's an, and sometimes prisoners to take care of, and, and wounded. It's the, the supply chain is everything. So Grant knew that, and and Lee wanted to do a prisoner exchange, and Grant didn't want to. He wouldn't do it because he knew it would slow him down. So just to give you a sense of what the supply, how meaningful the supply chain is. Yeah. Uh, a further example would be uh, Hitler had tanks all over Europe. He, had, he didn't have fuel for it. And the, the, there's a thought that if he would have had fuel, he could have won the war. So the supply chain is very important. Wow. In Vietnam, the supply chain was the Ho Chi Minh Trail. The Ho Chi Minh Trail ran from North Vietnam down into South Vietnam. And the, South, the North Vietnamese and the Viet Cong were entrenched in the South. In fact, the base I was at, it was called the Marine Helicopter Base. It was, we called it Marble Mountain. There was a big mountain next to the base. And I only learned years later after listening to Ken Burns' a documentary that he did on Vietnam, which is very well done. Inside that mountain was a Viet Cong hospital. So they had to supply things like that. So um, 
the the military intelligence recognized that the Ho Chi Minh Trail could be a crucial point in, in winning the war. Uh, during the day, they, they had like elephants and oxen and water buffalo that was transporting all of this food and supplies and, and people on Ho Chi Minh Trail. So wow. during the day, they bombed it. And at night, the, the North Vietnamese and the Viet Cong would come out of the jungles and the mountains and they would rebuild it. And they wow. did this, this was a daily occurrence. And in watching the Ken Burns video, I learned uh, one of the North Vietnamese leaders says that we knew that the American people were going to run out of resolve of bombing that thing before we were going to run out of resolve to rebuilding. So we would have rebuilt that thing for as long as it took. So you have to respect the resolve of the Vietnamese people to have that kind of an attitude. It's very yeah. impressive. Uh, second thing I wanted to talk about was the uh, the defoliant agent orange that was used over there. Yeah, um, it was a, a very heavily mountainous uh, jungle area. And military intelligence pretty much knew where the Viet Cong, North Vietnamese strong, strangleholds were, strongholds. So uh, they they contracted out with Monsanto Chemical Corporation to come up with this defoliant called Agent Orange, and it defoliated the area so the Viet Cong didn't have, the North Vietnamese had no place to, to hide. And uh, the downside to that is, and, and this is, happens in every war. It's not new. They use mustard gas in World War One. But um, that defoliant is still active in Vietnam. It's in the soil. It's going to take generations to, to, to remediate that countryside and, and the soil. Yeah. And uh, those people are going to suffer from the effects of that for, for many, many years. So that's something we all need to think about uh, is, you know, the, the cruel things we do uh, during war. Yeah, that's, that's, I wanted to touch on that, too. I'm glad you brought that up because I actually had the opportunity to visit Vietnam. And I was in Ho Chi Minh City there where the, uh, I guess, formerly known as Saigon, right? Um, yes. And they have the war museum, and you know, I was out there. I saw all the tanks and you know all the, all the U.S. you know aircraft in the in the front. But then when I went in, you get to see the reality of the war from their perspective. It was some horrible images, right? And part of that was you know the Agent Orange that they use. And some people, as you mentioned, are still facing the effects of that. I you know some of them guys um, were born with defects, and they were there kind of sh sharing their stories. Some guys were there, you know you know, just defective from that. And sure. um, when you see the, the maps and the images of the forest before and after, you can really see the power of the, of what the, it does the, to the forest. Yeah, it was pretty, pretty powerful chemical. Yeah. yeah. Wow. And, you know, I'm, I'm just looking at it in terms of history, but you were there living that, you know? Yeah, it was, it was an interesting experience. Uh, uh, you know, I, I was fortunate in that I was, a, I was a helicopter crew chief. I wasn't a boots on the ground walking around in swamps and, uh, you know, avoiding snipers and uh, booby yeah. traps all day. But I wanted to talk a little bit about that part of the war. Uh, there was two opposing approaches to the war as far as the small units. You know, and these were small units that we used in Vietnam. You think about Normandy where there was thousands of... Uh, troops to hit the beach at Normandy, and this is what this was much. This is like small units. It was like squad at the squad level, like 12, mm -hmm. 13 guys, and uh, they would go into a village. It was called one. One approach was called search and destroy, and the Marine Corps and the Army deployed this search and destroy uh, approach, and they would go into a village, and they would search all the huts. These are very humble huts. They have the grass thatch huts, and uh, they would they would uh, survey the village, inspect everything. And uh, if they found any mortars or AK-47s or weapons or ammunition or anything that looked like there was a Viet Cong presence in the village, they rounded up all of the young men in the village, all the men in the village, and they interrogated them. And I don't know how 
they came to these conclusions, but uh, if they felt that there was need to t interrogate some of these guys further, they took them as prisoners. Mm. They would tie their biceps behind their arms, and uh, they were always blindfolded, and they would call uh, for helicopters, and we would come in and take these prisoners of, war, prisoners of war from the battlefield to Central Intelligence Agency detention centers. And uh, once they got them out of the village, then the last thing they did was they burnt the village to the ground because they're only mm -hmm. grass thatched huts. Yeah. And they, they would just totally level the entire village. So what they were doing was they were becoming like recruiters for the Viet Cong because if, if you wanted to be an American, a village to be American sympathizers, that wasn't really a good approach to use. Yeah. You know, it really turned people off. So that was kind of a, a poor way of prosecuting the war. The second, the second way was uh, there was there was a three-star general in the Marine Corps by the name of General Krulak. He was probably going to get his fourth star to become commandant, except he had an issue with uh, General, or I'm, I'm sorry, uh, President um, John, Lyndon Johnson. He tried to convince President Johnson that the way to approach the war at the small unit level was what's called the war of pacification. The Army had these uh, special operations troops. Everybody knows familiar with the Green Berets very multi-talented, multi-disciplined troops, and they were skilled in medicine, they were skilled in education, they were skilled in agriculture, they were linguists, they spoke the language, and they would go into these villages and they would come, become their friends, they would teach the children, they would help them with their crops, and, and, the, and the, they, they were winning the war by pacification. So he tried to convince Lyndon Johnson that the Army's war of pacification with Green Beret Special Operators was the way to win. And the Ar combined Army Marine Corps approach to go in there and search and destroy was doing nothing more than turning the village into Viet Cong sympathizers. Uh, Lyndon Johnson didn't care for that. He, uh, he just didn't feel uh, like, like a, a lot of modern day presidents that it's important to listen to your military leadership. And I think, uh, and I use the term leadership, you know, uh, um, I, I firmly believe that Lyndon Johnson and Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara are going to be judged very poorly by history. I don't think they're going to th treat them very kindly because of their, the way they prosecuted the war. But mm -hmm. speaking of leadership, not too long ago I was at this multicast and I heard this uh, guy speaking. He was my age, but at the time of Vietnam he was a newly minted uh, second lieutenant out of West Point and he was assigned as a platoon leader. And his platoon commander gave all his platoon leaders this little card. And he told them to carry it around in, his, in their wallet, carry it with them, and read it as you know, often as they could. And that card said, uh, a soldier who loses his life on the battlefield due to a lack of leadership, a f due to a failure of leadership, is a dreadful sight before God. And it really emphasized to me the responsibility of leadership, not, not, not just at the unit level, but especially at the unit level, because I think the leadership of the country at the time was very poor, and uh, it was a very poorly prosecuted war. I don't think we understood what we were doing or why we were there. And, uh, you know, th this country paid a very high price for that. Yeah. From your perspective, why were we there? I, 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 certainly, uh, it was the, you know, the, you've heard of the domino effect with communism. Uh, once once one company one country becomes communist, then there's the domino effect. Another country becomes, and they felt that if they could stop the domino, if they had to stop the domino effect in Southeast Asia, it was going to spread all over the Asian yeah. you know Asian world. And I, I guess there's a, a an element of truth to that. But when you're when you're at the unit level and you're seeing things as a combat soldier and as a helicopter crew chief, and so, like some of the prisoners that we took out of these villages. 
they were like kids, and I mean, I mean kids. I'm talking about 12, 13, 14-year-old kids. Yeah. And uh, you, you, you kind of say, you know, what, where's, the moral, where's the moral compass here? How, how, how do you justify, you know, taking prisoners of kids that age and uh, look at all the devastation and the, the, the lives that were lost and the, the, the horrible thing with Agent Orange. So yeah. from my perspective, like I said, I'm not a, not a history professor, a political scientist, or a foreign policy expert, but it was just, uh, it, it, it just... It just didn't make sense yeah, to me and to a lot of other guys. And like, I guess, you know, trying to duplicate what happened in Korea, right? And Yeah. In, in the most basic yeah. sense, but, you know, it's a different animal yeah. when you when you um, look at it. Yeah. From, I mean, we had the benefit of looking at history, right, and seeing how it played out. I mean, uh, I'd hate to be in that seat during it, you I, know? You know, there's, there's a wonderful documentary put out by Ken Burns, and it's on Vietnam. It's, I think it's like, 10 this to two hours it's just like 20 hours and he talks to a lot of Vietnamese North Vietnamese leadership or whatever and he put a marvelous perspective on it gives you the human face of war mm-hmm. you know if you if you wanted to get a sense of the human face of war I mean sure, sure General Grant and General Lee their, their memoirs are wonderful to read I've read them but if you really wanted to get a sense of civil war read the memoirs of the Confederate and Union soldiers that were actually boots on the ground I think the same thing in any war with Vietnam um, if you read the the, uh, the the diaries of some of the soldiers that were on the ground, I mean, you would get a real sense of what the human face of war is and how devastating it is, and how um, you know when we go to war, it's just it's just a horrible failure at the at the leadership level of nations to yeah. not be able to communicate better to avoid war. Yeah, and we're fortunate to be able to talk to you. Um, about your experience there. Well, th- um, thank you. Because, you know, yeah, we he- we see the history books and how it played out at the grand level with, you know, leaders in the, you know, the respective countries. But, you know, there's a rare opportunity to sit down and talk to someone like you that was, you know, a helicopter crew chief, saw the action, you know, and tell your story in this way. Because, I mean, my perspective, I, I mean, of course, I wasn't there. I went to the museum and saw horrific images and and um, horrific. I they, they, the reading reading it too was horrible. Like just I didn't really see it in that way. And that like you know a lot of times the history books are cleaned up a little bit. Mm-hmm. That was the raw like in that museum was the raw what of what happened like the raw images raw text, and you know some some guys went insane over there. I mean I I hope to get over there to see that someday. You know I'd yeah. love to go back. You know, it's a, it would be a great experience. Yeah, and so I wanted to try to dive into what it was like being there so young when you first got off, and you're like, "Hey, I'm I'm in the war now." What was that like? Well, you know, actually, there's there's, there's a little bit of a naivete when you first get there. Um, you know, it's it's very exciting to be a helicopter crew chief. It's an exciting job. Mm-hmm. You know, you fly a lot of longer. Like in Vietnam, we 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 were. Turning and burning, as they say, at 6.30 in the morning at sunrise, and you didn't get back to the base till dusk. It was like a 12-hour day, and uh, you, you flew six days a week, and it was, it was hard work. It was hard physical work, but it was very enjoyable, and you felt like you were doing something meaningful. And uh, so when you first get there, you're just uh, you're in this new country, and you're flying around, and it's something totally foreign to you, and it's exciting. And then uh, you start losing guys in your unit, you know, you start crew chief gets killed or a pilot gets killed or you're flying along and uh, you get back to the base and you realize there's some bullet holes all over where you were sitting you know and you realize you know this, this is real this 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 is 
this is real stuff. I could lose my life here. So yeah. then you start changing your perspective a little bit. And then something real happens. I, I think I've told you my story about uh, my medevac experience. Yeah. Um, we were uh, called out on a medevac um, on this, this December 9th, 1965. I'll remember that day for the rest of my life. Uh, they called for medevac, and uh, one of our squadron mates went in and got shot down. So then they called us to come pick up them and the wounded that they were trying to evacuate. And it, it was uh, it was it was a mess. So the pilot aborted the mission. He says this the zone's too hot. You guys got to stabilize this zone before we come back. So then they called us back like a third time. And by now it's like 10 o'clock at night. It's pitch dark out. You can't see anything. And we were flaring out and getting ready to land. And I got into what they call a firefight. Uh, we have M60 machine guns. Every fifth round is a tracer round. It's like it's like a firecracker, more mm -hmm. or less, you know, or a flare coming out the end of the gun. And that's how you direct your fire. And the Viet Cong, of course, have um, tracer rounds. They're called tracer rounds. So you're directing these tracers at each other. I got in a firefight, and um, I got hit. And uh, the pilot elected to uh, to abort the mission. Uh, he felt it was too dangerous. He was afraid of losing the aircraft, that he didn't know how badly I was hit. So... Uh, we ended up uh, aborting the mission. He took me to a field hospital. Um, I was the next morning. I woke up in this recovery room and uh, I had all these tubes coming out of me and everything. And I went to cough and they had, had done some surgery on my abdomen. And uh, was that pretty, where you were injured? Yeah. Well, I was injured. Uh, I was got shot once in the calf, uh, once in the inside of my thigh, and then in uh, in the abdomen. Mm. And um, so uh, this this army it was an army field hospital. This this little army corpsman medical guy says to me, he says in about a half an hour there's going to be an Air Force C-141 comes in, and they're going to air evac everybody to Clark Air Force Hospital in the Philippines. He says if you could keep this chipped ice down, you could be on it. And he only came once a week. It just happened to be that morning. So I took some chipped ice. I was on it. So they they evac air evac me to uh, Clark Air Force Hospital in the Philippines, and I was there about a week. And they were getting ready to transport me back to the States. I was going to a Great Lakes Naval Hospital in Chicago. Mm. And they were just getting ready to transport me, and I developed this infection in my incision. And they, they can't transport you when you have an infection. Oh. So uh, I had to wait two more weeks for the infection to clear, and I ended up getting her back, back on Christmas Eve. I made, it back to, I made it to Great Lakes Naval Hospital Christmas Eve. And then uh, they don't close your wounds either, because if, if once they close your wounds, they start to heal. And once you start to heal, there's a chance for infection. And once you've had an infection, you can't be transported. So my wounds were open. So I was going through dressing changes at this time. And I had some pretty serious wounds. Mm -hmm. I, mean, I had a, like a softball-sized hole in the back of my calf. And the inside of my oh thigh my. was, was a, had a huge laceration. It was about 10 inches long and about 4 inches deep. Oh so uh, I had to go through dressing changes every day. So finally, when I got back to the States the, 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 that morning, the uh, the resident intern, it was a lieutenant commander, Navy lieutenant commander, called my parents. He said, your son came in last night. We're going to close his wounds this morning. He's in very good condition. His prognosis is excellent. So I spent about um, eight months at Great Lakes Naval Hospital in Chicago, and then I was discharged back to full duty. And I still had nine months to do when I got out. So I went to a uh, Marine Corps facility in New River, North Carolina, spent nine months there, and then I was discharged. Wow, I didn't know the extent of your injuries there. That's yeah, it was. I, I got hit pretty seriously. Yeah, that's yeah. crazy. It was. It was. It was interesting. I used to have these kind of like dreams of. Uh, I would dream that I was shot, but I didn't know if I was alive or dead. 
It's just kind of like, like a, an out-of-body experience, sort of. Yeah. And then the night I got hit, I'm laying on that Florida helicopter, and I had this, like, euphoric feeling came over me that I, number one, I knew that I was going home because they, they had a criteria for being wounded. If you were wounded and you could be rehabilitated in less than 30 days, you either went to Guam or Yokohama, Japan, and then you went back to your unit. If, if it would take over 30 days to rehabilitate you, you went back to the States. And I knew laying on the bottom of the hill, it was pitch dark out, I couldn't see anything. I knew I was going home. And it was just, uh, I think, a, like a sense of relief, like a euphoric sense of relief. And I was just totally relaxed. And I said, wow, I'm going home alive. I'm getting out of here alive. You know, everybody's worried about, are you really ever going to get to go home again? Are you going to get out of this place alive? And I knew at that moment, at that moment I knew I was going to survive. And it was, it was a wonderful feeling. Wow. And was that at the moment in the helicopter where, in the you, hill, were, where yeah. you were receiving fire? Yeah, yeah. At that moment? Yeah, at that moment wow. I knew. I said, I, I know I'm hit, and I think I'm hit bad, but I, I think, I think I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna survive here. I'm, yeah. gonna, I'm going home. And yeah. I just, I, it was kind of like, instead of feeling bad, I felt terrific. Wow. <laughs> so I said, I'm gonna be okay. <laughs> this is over for me. Yeah, that's such an odd <laughs> way of thinking, I guess. I mean, you're, yeah, I mean, it's a horrible yeah. experience, but yet you have this sense of relief. Yeah, it was a, it was a sense of relief. I guess that's the best adjective I could use to characterize it. It was a real sense of relief. Yeah, and I knew it was, it was over for me, and I was going to be okay. Wow, and your family must have liked that. Oh, they present were, Christmas Eve, huh? They they were delighted. Yeah, yeah. When I got to, uh, I spent the night when I left the tra- uh, Clark Air Force Hospital. They flew us to uh, Clark Air Force Hospital in. California, and I spent the night there. And as soon as I got there, the Red Cross uh, paid for a three-minute phone call for us to call our families, and that's the first time they had heard, heard from me since I had gone overseas. So it was it was it was good for everybody. It was it was just a great experience for everybody. Wow. Yeah. I wanted to read a, a little snapshot from your heroic achievement letter that I read in your sure. book. Sure. Uh, for the audience, because. Now they heard it from you, but I wanted to. This was written by the pilot. Yeah, the pilot wrote me up for a citation uh, when I got okay. hit, and that, that those are his words. Okay. Well, it says this: the helicopter sustained numerous hits, one of which seriously injured Lance Corporal Beebe. I guess there was three, right? Three There's hits. Three, yeah. three hits for yeah. you. Yep. Although in intense pain, he continued to man his machine gun, returning accurate fire at the enemy, stubbornly refusing first aid. He remained at his post until the helicopter was safely airborne. Stubbornly. Your wife would probably agree with that, huh? <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. Carol, Carol would definitely agree with that. That's, that's for sure. It sounds like you a little bit. I can hear <laughs> the 19-year-old you stubbornly refusing first aid while you're shot. <laughs> yep, she would agree with that. That's amazing. I mean, you know, I mean, there's a long letter. I only pulled out a little snippet, but um, reading through that, and re- he also has pictures, too. I mean, you were in the newspaper. You had other Photos yeah, I, mean, there. I had a lot of press coverage. Uh, you know, anybody that's been in combat, you know, you get decorations, and I got a lot of decorations when I was in the hospital. And, and every time I got, I never received a decoration from anybody less than a one-star general, brigadier general. Mm. Uh, I think I had three decorations from brigadier, uh, brigadier generals, and uh, had one decoration after I was out of the hospital. I was waiting on my orders, so I was at the Marine barracks to go to, to go back to duty. And uh, the commander of the uh, base, the commander of the naval base, I got I got got a decoration from him. I, I got some nice decorations from pretty high level people. Uh-huh. I was shocked. I didn't think you know any any one star general would be given a lance corporal, you know, decoration. But it, yeah, wow, 
they had generals giving these things out. Was pretty, and I got pictures of all of them. It's pretty, it's pretty yeah. cool. Must be cool as a nineteen-year-old. Yeah, yeah, it was pretty cool. Was pretty good. Most guys are just graduating from high school, you know. Yeah, yeah. I'm thinking, what was I doing at nineteen? <laughs> Not that. That's for sure. Yeah. And at nineteen, how was your faith life back well, then? Well, I got to tell you. Um, first of all, um, I think I like to think at the time. Not that I'm trying to defend myself. I like to think at the time my faith was probably parallel with most people that age. Mm-hmm. I'd like to tell you I went to Mass every Sunday in communion. I did not. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was kind of like ambivalent about my faith. But the longer I was there, the longer um, I really lost my faith. Mm-hmm. I went through a faith crisis. In Vietnam? Yeah. Wow. I, I even doubted, frankly, the existence of God. Wow. I said there's no God that would allow something like this to happen. And I remember uh, there's a story about St. Ignatius Loyola, the founder of the Society of Jesus, the Jesuits. Mm-hmm. He was a knight, and he was wounded in battle, and he recuperated at uh, Montserrat. And while he was there, he read the life of the saints, and it, it was his conversion story to found the, the, the Society of Jesus or the Jesuits. And I'd like to tell you I had an experience like that. I did not. Yeah. And when, I, my, when my faith really came through for me was uh, years later, I was going through a divorce. It was a horrible time in my life. And uh, I went in, a, I, I started going back to church, and I went in this church retreat. And uh, the very next day, the guy that signed me up for the church retreat calls me because he knew I was single. And he says, Chuck, it was a Thursday night. He goes, Chuck, he goes, I got a big problem. So my wife and I are going on a confirmation youth retreat with another couple. And they just called telling us that they're getting divorced and they can't go. He goes, I, I need help. Can, can you go on this retreat with me? I said, sure. So I went on the retreat, and uh, it changed my life. Wow. It changed my life. I met this wonderful, wonderful group of kids, high school confirmation kids, and I really connected with them, and they invited me to come to their weekly youth group meeting, and I ended up becoming youth director of the parish. Wow. Yeah, it, it, it was a conversion experience for me. It made all the difference in the world. And what age were you at that oh, time? Gosh, I was probably, I don't know, 40 maybe. Okay. Yeah. So I, mean, was, I was no kid. Yeah, it was a significant yeah. time in between 19 and then. Yeah. 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 Wow. It was like years later. It shocked me that, you know, or maybe it doesn't shock me that you were over there and you saw all these horrific things and you were wondering, you really questioned, is there even a God? Oh, it, it, it tests your faith. Yeah. It really, I mean, my faith was tested. I, matter of fact, I mentioned it to my father in a letter home, and it, that my father was a real um, church-attending Christian. He, mm-hmm. his, his faith was really important to him. And when I told him, I said, I, I can't believe there could possibly be a God that would allow something like this to happen. And he wrote me this beautiful letter wow. you know, saying, listen, you know, there's a lot of people to blame here. God's not one of them. You, you, you need to maintain your faith. And he, he, it was a beautiful letter, beautiful letter that he wrote me. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, and you know that sometimes when people see that stuff, they they draw closer to faith. Yeah, well, I, but that it, was the opposite effect. I, for I, you. I knew, well, like Saint Ignatius Loyola, I loved to looking back on it. I would love to say that this strengthened my faith and really made me, you know, a better Catholic or a better Christian. But frankly, it was just the opposite. And I, it's kind of a a sad note for me that I didn't use this to strengthen my faith it just actually had the opposite effect yeah well I don't think anyone blames you for that either because uh, I hope not <laughs> it's 
I mean, getting shot three times and seeing yeah. all that and knowing, you know, I'm sure you had bad press of the war you were reading oh, about. Yeah, well, you know, it was a tough time because it was the 60s and uh, kiss, uh, President Kennedy was assassinated and Lyndon Johnson took over. And Lyndon Johnson elected not to run for re-election. You can imagine what that did to the morale of the troops. And you had uh, Martin Luther King got assassinated, Robert Kennedy got assassinated. It was the uh, civil rights movement. Um, it was a tough time for this country, and, and, and there was a huge anti-Vietnam War movement. Yeah. So, and the troops in Vietnam, they knew that. So, I mean, mm -hmm. it, it was uh, it was a, uh, an emotionally trying time. Yeah. What was that like coming back? I know you were probably excited to see your family and everything, but due to like the bad press, did that affect you in any way? You know, not really. Uh, I've heard stories of people arriving at the airport and so forth, and uh, people doing bad things, you know, saying bad things to them, calling them baby killers, whatever. But I had the benefit of when I came home, I came home on a, a, an Air Force C-141 mm. airbag plane that landed at, uh, uh, I think it was Willow Grove uh, Naval Air Station in Chicago. And, uh, or I forget the name of the Glenview Naval Air Station. And so we, we came in at 3 o'clock in the morning. So we were in the dead of the dead of night. And uh, so I didn't really get exposed to any of the outside bad press or anything. Okay. You know, I may have read about it in the newspaper. I saw it on the news, but yeah. I never had any personal experiences that someone, you know, felt uh, animosity towards me personally. Yeah. And without the benefit of looking back at that time as a 19-year-old, you just got wounded. You kind of sacrificed. Well, you did. You did sacrifice a lot for this country. You did what you were told to do. Um, what did that feel like when people sort of ran that through the mud, and so to well, speak? Well, you, you kind of you, you felt unappreciated. I can tell you one, one of the, the most overwhelming um, uh, emotions that you have, at least for me personally, not so much that I was afraid of getting wounded or afraid of getting killed. I was afraid that if I lost my life in Vietnam, I was terrified that nobody would know or nobody would care. And that ate away at me. I'm thinking if I, you know, like on a night medevac mission, I'm saying if I, if I get killed tonight, if I, if I get killed out here, is anybody really going to care? Hmm. Does it really make a difference? Am I, you know, what's the point of me being here? And that was, that was a, a very powerful emotion that, that a lot of the troops, the people that I served with, uh, the guys I served with, we thought about that all the time. So, you know, geez, you know if we get whacked over here, is anybody going to know or is anybody going to really care what happened? And that's a, that's a pretty overwhelming emotion to have to deal with, to know that whatever you're doing doesn't have enough value that anyone else feels it's got some sort of redeeming value. Yeah, that's a tough thing to get to wrap your arms around. What it begs the question: What kept you going? Um, we were, I tell you, we we were insanely busy. I mean, we when you got up in the morning, you know, you you you, you fueled your aircraft and loaded it with the cargo and pre-flighted it, and you were gone like at sunrise, and you flew, you literally flew all day. And, you know, wow. you, you took a lunch break, and, you know, you, you sometimes you have to take a break to refuel the aircraft. You were gone all the time. You were you worked like a rented mule. And this was six days a week. You, you didn't have a lot of time to sit down. And, you know, and when you got home at night, you, you just wanted to, to take a shower and go to bed, you know, hit yeah. your rack. So there wasn't a lot of time to do a lot of perspective thinking. Wow. You know, it, you, were, you were constantly doing something. And you really, personally, personally, you felt a sense of purpose. When I when I got discharged from the hospital, I went back to full duty. I still had nine months to do. So they put me in a squadron that was going out on a, on a cruise, on an aircraft carrier. They had these battle groups that they used to go out with destroyers and battleships and that kind of I was on an aircraft carrier with my mm -hmm. squadron. And uh, Hurricane Inez 
hit San Domingo and the Dominican Republic and Haiti. So we went out to sea around it. And after it went made landfall, we came back with our squadron and we flew uh, Navy corpsmen and medical doctors and so forth to the beach along with uh, potable water and powdered milk and that kind of thing. We were there for like six days. And I remember those six days as, I, I can never remember feeling a higher sense of purpose than those six days. I mean, I really felt like, man, you know, I don't know if there's too many people on the face of the earth are, are, are doing what we're doing right now that's, that's good stuff. You know, you really felt a sense of purpose. You really did. Wow. So that was pretty powerful. Yeah, and you know, when you say that, I see that around here, when you do your duties here. Sure. You know, I mean, of course, it's all volunteer work out of free will and yeah. goodwill of your heart. Um, I see that, your sense of purpose well, around here. Thank you, Ryan. Do you think that stems back from that time? Oh, I think it does. But I think, uh, you know, they say that the, uh, the highest form of... Uh, of uh, anything is, is you know ser services is, a, is is the highest form of uh, your our humanity and i just have, i've always loved service i've always loved helping people doing other things. it makes me feel good about myself yeah. and uh, plus I, to be very honest with you as by, by my very nature i'm a lazy guy so i have <laughs> to keep myself stacked up with projects yeah you know keep myself busy but yeah, yeah I, I love service i just love you meet great people you help great people like the food pantry you know, there's a lot of families right now that are going through tremendous food insecurity. Yeah. And uh, when they show up there, you feel like you're, you've really done something meaningful. You make, it makes you feel good about yourself. For sure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah your, your entire life almost has been dedicated to service yeah, in well, some way. Well, That's thank, really cool. Thank you. Yeah. And, you know, of course, the food drive. I mean, you, de you, you now took that over, I'm, basically. I'm, I'm driving a trailer. Yeah, he he bought an F one fifty originally for your motorhome, right? Well, your for, camper. I got a little camper, and uh, so I had to get a truck. I never owned a truck in my life, and you ought to see me trying to back up that food pantry trailer. It's a it's like the Keystone Cops. <laughs> I mean, I got a, I got the, some guys helping me back it up, or Rick Mesley and Mo Fenimore, and uh, you know it's not unusual for me to take like eight ten shots at it to yeah. try to get it lined up. Yeah, it, it's tough. <laughs> it's tough. It, it can be tough, and it it's you have to be. like turn the opposite way you think, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> when exactly. you have a trailer on, exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's it's just such an honor to be in service with you here at the church. I mean, hearing your, I didn't know any of this stuff. Oh. All this stuff today we talked about was new to me. Thank, I had no you, idea. Thank you. I'll, I'll return the compliment. I feel likewise about you. Thank you very. That's that's quite complimentary. Thank you. You make me feel good about myself. Yeah. Any any time, and you know, I know. There's probably a lot of shocking things that are going through people's minds. I mean, what can we sort of, in closing, you know, put the yeah, message out? Yeah, I think uh, I like to think that um, the one thing with you know, there's there's a question. Uh, I'm in this uh, group right now. I don't have PTSD, but I'm in a PTS study group. I'm like a mentor to some PTS. Uh, uh, veterans at the, at the VA hospital. And that if, VA hospital is one of the largest well, in the country, know, right? A lot of people don't. I've been through three VA hospitals in my lifetime. I spent a number of years at the Cleveland, Ohio VA hospital. I mean, you know, just getting treated there. And also the uh, West Haven VA hospital in Connecticut and now Coatesville. And I can tell you, it's number one. It's the best VA hospital I've ever been in. And number two, a lot of people are not aware that uh, VA Coatesville is one of the largest PTSD hospitals in the country. Wow. And um, I, we're studying this book right now in this PTSD class, and one of the questions that's asked is, um, what, what's the purpose of life? And, uh, you know, you, it causes you to th think a little bit. And, and I, I think personally is we're put here to be productive. 
and in the process of being productive, we're helping other people. We're here, here, we're here to help other people. We're not here to have a good time. We're here to, to make the most use of the time we're here and to be productive and help others. And if you help others, uh, you're going to have a very enriched life. Wow. You know, for sure. That's a, that's a good message. Yeah, and, you know, a lot of times... You know, I think you, for your, for your sake, you, you have, you think of life differently than a lot of maybe young people my age think. I mean, you were, you had to be thrown into something that you had to mature really quickly, right? You had to be mature yeah, in that sense. Yeah, pretty quick. Yeah, that's for sure. How, how did that? I mean, I'm trying to think of other questions to ask you here because that, that was a really cool insight that you had that I think a lot of people of our audience can learn from, especially people my age. That experience stemming back all the way to Vietnam when you were 19 thinking about it today how did that experience sort of fuel your need or desire to serve today well i think that uh, like i said before service is the highest expression of our humanity and once you've experienced that it's it's uh, it's like if you've ever done any running i used to be a runner years ago mm-hmm. when i was about 50 pounds later yeah and you get this runner's high once you once you get addicted to that you you want you want to do exercise you want to run and once you've done service and had a pleasant experience and really saw the, the benefit of uh, the, the, the outcome of your service, like the food pantry. You know, once mm-hmm. you've seen people show up at that food pantry and they're getting food, you, you, you want to feel it's a wonderful feeling. You want to you get that feeling again. And once you've experienced it, you don't ever want to let it go. You just want to yeah. keep that thing. You want to keep it going. And um, the service is uh, it's a wonderful thing. That's awesome. Well, we got to wrap up soon. We're about the around the forty minute mark. He, he told me that he he was able to talk a lot. We might even be able to do another show with you, and, sure, and if you sure. wanted to talk to. about other aspects. But I'd I mean, your to. your story is amazing. It's inspiring for me, at least, and I know for a lot of our listeners out there, they they would take some value out of listening to you. They have great value out of that. Thank you, Ryan. I'd love to be invited back. Yeah, and so um, any last words before we head off? Um. Not, not really. I, I just uh, was very impressed when you told me that you were doing this uh, podcast on real faith uh, conversations. And uh, I didn't know these kind of things were going on out there, to tell you the truth, particularly by you young guys. I, mean, I, I don't know how old you guys were, but, are, but you're young people. And for you guys, I know that Rachel's got to go to school tomorrow. William's got to go to school tomorrow. you got to go to work. And for you to do this kind of thing, I'm very, very impressed. So I'm just delighted and honored that you folks invited me to be part of this. I, I really do hope you invite me back for another session on something else maybe. Yeah, for sure. I mean, we're always looking to source people. And that's a good segue. If anyone has anything, any topic like this or anything you want to come onto the show and talk about, Email media at stpeterchurch.net. That is media at stpeterchurch.net. And St. Peter is all spelled out. Come on, email, and we'll bring you on the show. Was this fun? Oh, this was a lot of fun. This was great fun. I really enjoyed it. And I'm frankly very honored uh, to be in the presence of... I didn't know that there were still people as young as you folks in the world, but I'm, I'm honored that you you wanted to be with me tonight because uh, I'm an old guy. You know? Yeah. <laughs> Our pleasure. Thank you, Chuck. You're welcome, Ryan. Have a good night. Same to you.